and welcome to Pole Position, a podcast series from the Hoover Institution covering the 2016 election season. Pole Position is hosted by Hoover Research Fellow Bill Whalen, an expert in U.S. and California politics and elections. Hello, it's Thursday, October the 6th, and welcome to Pole Position, the Hoover Institution's ongoing look at the 2016 election. Now just 33 days away, or less than 800 hours. Plenty of time to plan a victory party, call your broker, or check in how to apply to citizenship for Canada or Costa Rica. <laughs> However you plan to celebrate this election. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today, David Brady, Stanford University political scientist and the Davies Family Senior Fellow here at Hoover, and Doug Rivers, a Stanford political scientist and Hoover Senior Fellow, as well as a chief scientist for YouGov, the Palo Alto-based polling firm. Gentlemen, good to see you both. And in the spirit of Tim Kaine, Let's try to keep the interrupting to a minimum, okay? okay. <laughs> uh, Bill, I... <laughs> <laughs> well, you can interrupt Brady. You feel free to do that. Why did Everybody Tim... Does. So let's start this with a little political primer for the folks listening out here, and that's why did Tim Kaine do what Tim Kaine did? Mild-mannered, pretty nice guy Tim Kaine is kind of a bully and kind of a jerk in the vice presidential debate. Time and again, I think 75 times by some people's counts, he interrupted Mike Pence, nice, mild-mannered Mike Pence. People look at this, and they're aghast by such behavior, but here's what I think people are missing. A lot of Americans watch political debates, and they make the wrong assumption that a political debate is the same as a high school debate, which you did when you took a forensics class back in high school. You're not trying to get out in front of the public and necessarily win the night on your sound argument. You're not really caring how people grade you. You go into it with a strategic goal in mind. And I'm not privy to the conversation, but here's what the Clinton campaign had in mind. Number one, don't cause a, don't do something, don't make a mistake, don't commit a gaffe that forces me on Sunday as Hillary Clinton to have to defend my running mate. So no Soviet, no Poland is a free country not under Soviet oppression. <laughs> no, no boners like that. So number one, don't make a mistake. Number two, we want to prevent the opposition from getting back on track. We want to keep Mike Pence from having a clean soundbite explaining why it's good for a conservative vote for Donald Trump. Why Donald Trump makes sense for America. So anytime you get the opportunity, step on his message. And if it means interrupting, go right ahead. And if you go back to 2012 and watch the vice presidential debate with Joe Biden and Paul Ryan, that's exactly what Joe Biden did time and again to Paul Ryan. But there's a third presumption here, fellas, which I want you to explain for me. And that's the calculation that why do you do this? Why do you act like kind of a jerk? And why do you really not care that much about how you're promoting the Democratic message? And that's because you made the assumption that we, the Clinton-Cain ticket, have the lead. And we're going to sit on our lead and stall and run this thing out. So are they right? Does Hillary Clinton have the lead at this point? Yeah, she has the lead. but uh, And I think the debate helped. But Doug has uh, really good information on that. So I'm going to pass it on to Doug. Interrupt him in the opposite way. <laughs> <laughs> this is post-debate bounce information. Yeah. So um, the well, first the vice presidential debates. Um, on the whole, they haven't made any difference. Uh, you know, the one that was a clear win was uh, 1988 when Lloyd Benson um, got served up a softball by Dan Quayle, and he, right. uh, Benson destroyed him with it in the "You're No Jack Kennedy" line. And we all remember Vice President Benson. And number yes. number of states that ticket won that fall. <laughs> Ten. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I think in in the end, you're absolutely right on uh, that this was not scored on points, and Kane didn't do that badly in terms of bringing up Trump's negatives. 
by the by the way, fellows, viewership. Uh, another reason why you can act like this. Not too many people are watching. The first Clinton-Trump. Uh, debate drew about 85 million people, a record for a presidential debate. The numbers are out this morning on the vice presidential debate, 37 and a half million. That's almost 50 million less than the presidential. It's about 13 million fewer than the 2012 debate. So, On the other hand, that's more people than will pay attention to the elected vice president over the next four years. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> um, so let's go back to the debate that matters, uh, which is the first presidential debate. Uh, on the morning of that debate, the polling average in 538 was basically an even race. Um, we have a poll at uh, YouGov, uh, a model that we estimate that um, it uh, wasn't released at that point, but it also had that race it right. roughly even at that point. Uh, as of today, the polling averages are uh, Clinton plus four, plus five. Mm -hmm. And our model at YouGov shows it a little closer. We're at plus 3.8. Um, is that uh, bounce real uh, or imaginary? Uh, I've uh, in the past argued that a lot of the bounces that we see in the polls are due to polling methodology and not due to real movement in voters. So, for example, in the 2012, uh, presidential debate, the first one, which Romney clearly won on debating points, and he moved up in the polls, gaining as much as 10 points. Um, and uh, looking back in retrospect, it appears that most of that was problems in polling methodology and not real movement. The real movement was on the order of two points. But they should point out that the problem in the polling methodology was specifically that after the debate, Democrats were less likely to want to talk on a phone interview, and Republicans, because Romney had won, were more likely, so they oversampled Republicans. Right. Yeah, so you have a problem in polling of who you're talking to. Are you talking to the same people? So that brings us to uh, some work that uh, Dave and I have been doing um, this year, where we've been talking to a group of 5,000 people uh, every month since May of 2015. Uh, so. Uh, we did an interview with this group uh, in, uh, in uh, mid-September, uh, and we went back to them last week uh, after the first presidential debate uh, was done over last weekend. Um, and uh, what we see is that uh, talking to the same people, it appears that Clinton gained about two points uh, from that debate. Uh, and that was about one point came from Trump supporters. Um, and then the rest was uh, coming from gains uh, from the Johnson and Stein voters. Uh, so uh, to give you some concrete numbers, 94% uh, of the people uh, who in mid-September told us they were going to vote for Hillary Clinton said they're still going to vote for Hillary, Hillary Clinton. 0.2%, uh, which uh, in this case... Uh, is I believe two people uh, said they're now going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, if we look at Trump voters, 92% of them said they're going to vote for Trump. 1.3%, mm -hmm. which is a grand total of about 10 people, said they're going to vote for Clinton. That's about a point. So you're telling me that they both have kind of a good locked-in base at this point? Yeah, so the bulk of the people who thought they were going to vote for Clinton and Trump still were. A small number appeared to move from Trump to Clinton more than moved the other direction. 
the rest was movements on will not vote, uh, other candidates, and so forth. Where you see real movement is in the third party candidates. So we've had polls where Gary Johnson has been in double digits. Routinely, most of the media polls are showing Johnson and Stein at, combined at 10 to 15 points. That is a malleable target for the campaigns, and we see it in our data. Right. So uh, roughly two-thirds of the Johnson voters in September said they're still going to vote for Johnson. Ten percent of them said they're now going to vote for Clinton and 7% said they were going to vote for Trump. Uh, much smaller base there, but there's a pickup of roughly a half a point for Clinton there. Jill Stein. Right. Would never have guessed at this point we'd be talking about Jill Stein. Right. Uh, she's polling at 2 to 4% in the polls these days. Um, in 2012, I think she uh, you know, was well under 1%. Um, my prediction is that vote's going to go, and there's no sign that those voters are going to vote for Donald Trump. Um, we found that uh, none of them, or excuse me, 8% uh, of the Stein voters said they were going to vote for Trump. 39% said they're going to vote for Clinton. So she, Clinton picked up a fair number of them. It's not a big category, but uh, in this election, being able to pick up you know, if, if Stein is polling at three or four, being able right. to pick up half of those voters is a real movement for Clinton. One, one, the oh, go ahead. last thing mm -hmm. is the undecided voters. Mm -hmm. The bulk, first, there are fewer undecided voters than people think. Um, the big category are these third-party candidates. Um, so we're not getting a lot of people uh, saying they're undecided. They're, uh, it's about 2% uh, more than we were getting in 2012. Um, and those people are right now splitting relatively evenly uh, between Clinton and Trump. There wasn't a big gain. Um, the undecideds, two-thirds of them, are still undecided. After the first presidential debate, 14% went to Clinton and 13% went to Trump. So we're not seeing a lot of movement there. And the fact is most of those people are low-information voters who probably won't vote at high rates. Um, so I think the bigger, juicier target for the campaigns are these people who currently are saying they're going to vote for third-party candidates. So that data you're just talking about, you've, uh, you've controlled for uh, who you think is going to vote? Um, those are of registered voters. I right. haven't applied a likely voter screen okay. to so, so the point, the point to make there is if you, look, if you look at the raw data on this poll, there's a much higher number of people who say, I won't vote or I'm undecided. What he's saying is if you actually try and get at who's going to vote by looking at who says they're registered, right. uh, that, that number is there's far fewer undecided. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think that's true, mm -hmm. although it's also you're never quite certain, right, about when they say they're registered. Right. Likely voter screens are an art, not a science. Yeah. Let's uh, go through this one more time because I think this is very important. Um, you read more news accounts of the Clinton campaign targeting libertarian voters, and you hear more and more from Gary Johnson about his having issues with Hillary Clinton because he feels that she is coming after him in particular. I think, indeed, her campaign or her PACs have been He seems to be him. coming after himself pretty well. He is kind of a uh, one-man gap machine, no question about that. But So, again, let's just quickly go through the empirical evidence of the, of the libertarian 
fall off now, you know, moving elsewhere? Are they are they moving to the Democrats more than Republicans? Yes. Um, so that's somewhat surprising. Yep. You think of libertarians as uh, basically being closer to Republicans. Um, you know, Rand Paul uh, ran in the well, Republican on primary issues, right. but not on social issues. That's right. Um, so Gary Johnson's campaign, the pivotal issue for him has been marijuana uh, more than libertarian economic issues, which puts them more, the people who are supporting him for that are probably a little more likely to be in the Democratic camp. Right. Though Hillary Clinton has a problem with young voters. Correct. Um, and so, uh, you know, I mean, if, if I would say her big problem is closing the deal with the Sanders supporters and younger people who just haven't warmed up to her. Mm -hmm. um, but in any event, I, you normally expect libertarians to split um, for rep uh, the Republican candidate. Right. And what we're seeing at the moment so far is that the losses from Johnson are going more towards Clinton than they are towards Trump. That may mean that some of the never Trump voters are still in the Johnson campaign. Right. And this in comes in, November, this, oh, go ahead. This comes in very handy for her in three states in particular. Number one, Nevada, which has a libertarian streak to it. Number two, Colorado, which as we know has a marijuana streak to it. And then third, New Hampshire, where Ralph Nader, not a libertarian, but Ralph an independent, though, did considerable damage to Al Gore in 2000. So that delights the campaign. But I'm sorry, David. Oh, no, it's right. In uh, <clears throat> the September, late August, early September survey that Doug was talking about before the latest one, we asked a question only of voters who were undecided, said they wouldn't vote, or were for a third-party candidate, and said if the election were held today, uh, and you had to vote, would you vote for Hillary Clinton or, and uh, the same thing that he finds among libertarians mm -hmm. in this, we found them too, they split uh, strangely in, in the way he talked about it, they split strangely more for Clinton than I would have thought what he thought, but right. this is the second time in a row that this has happened. Yeah, so I think the geography is an interesting one, because um, people are looking at the electoral map and saying how uh, would Trump thread the needle? Uh, he's close enough in this race that, you know, a two-point pickup in the right place uh, could give him a majority in the Electoral College. Mm -hmm. Where people are making mistakes, and Nate Cohn uh, made this mistake in a recent piece in the New York Times, said that Florida is critical to um, Trump winning uh, the election. Uh, Trump is doing worse in Florida, and I, I would put Florida out of the toss-up category and into the uh, lean wow. uh, Clinton. And, and the reason for that is uh, that in, you've had a growth in the uh, Hispanic electorate in Florida. Uh, you've also had uh, generational replacement. So every year, uh, said deaths are primarily among people in the 70-plus category. Cuban-Americans are no longer as, so, as predominantly yeah. Republicans. Cuban-Americans, uh, younger Cuban-Americans are indistinguishable from other Hispanics. Right. So anyway, I would make the argument that Florida is not only not uh, necessary for Trump to win, uh, I, I don't think he will. Well, um, win Florida. But Trump has other electoral geography going in his direction. Okay. So, for example, states like Nevada, Colorado, right. New Hampshire uh, are ones that he uh, uh, would need um, to win at least some of those as well as he appears to be more competitive in Ohio. Right. And our polling shows Pennsylvania closer than most of the 
other polls which show Pennsylvania comfortably in the Clinton column. Glad you mentioned that because if you lose Florida, which is 29 electoral votes, it's the second largest state a Republican can pick up after Texas. How do you make up the 29? You're going to have to win at least one of two states, and one is Virginia with 13 electoral votes, and that's why Tim Kaine is on the ticket. That's a serious firewall for her. That's why Terry McAuliffe is letting prisoners vote. They're doing everything they can to protect the Old Dominion. But the other one's going to be the 20 electoral votes in Pennsylvania. Right. Plain and simple. And so which, Pennsylvania and Ohio can make up for Florida. And you'll notice in Philadelphia, where elections and statewide elections, Pennsylvania won and lost, there is a prominent Democrat, usually it's Joe Biden, in there every week without fail. They have, yes. They're just watching that thing like a hawk. Absolutely. Okay. That if Pennsylvania goes, then Clinton has real problems. I think it's close, but I don't see, I don't think. I don't think, I, I'm not predicting that Trump. Trump will win Pennsylvania, right. but there is a different map this year that is based on yeah. Trump doing better among working class whites than Romney did. Okay. I yeah. want to get back to Jill Stein, but let me read this little passage from an article today in Real Clear Politics, which ties into, I think, the Green Party and Millennials. Uh, it's a six and a ten part series that's running on real clear politics and the headline is Clinton gaining among millennials but obstacles remain and here is the lead. Dateline Philadelphia. At a focus group here Wednesday evening, eight suburban millennials of various backgrounds, most of them undecided in the presidential race, were asked to describe in several words how they felt about Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. For Trump, the responses were harsh almost across the board. Racist, misogynist, poor businessman, said one participant. Bigot, said another. Evil, bad judgment, said a third. Hot-tempered but smart was the only exception to this trend. But the Clinton responses weren't positive either. Career politicians, said one participant derisively. Bitch, liar, false, said another. Some were mixed on how they felt. Untrustworthy but stable, said one person. Shady but knowledgeable, said another. Hardworking, corrupt, a real dear politician, said another. The only participant to say something positive about Clinton without a negative attached described her simply as experienced. So, given this list of horribles, why is Jill Stein flatlining in this election? Jill well, Stein? <laughs> Jill Stein and the Green Party. Well, you, know, you would think in theory disgruntled millennials who love well, they know, but Sanders. they in the long run they're not dumb. They know that Jill Stein isn't going to win. Yeah, but they hate these two candidates, so you'd think they would want to take it take it out and give it to someone else. Yeah, Clinton's problem is she's the low risk candidate. Right. Um, we asked the question of, uh, you know, things are so bad. Are you willing uh, to elect a president who will shake things up, even if it risks making things worse? And the Trump voters, by four to one, said, yep, they're willing to risk making things worse. The Clinton voters are four to one the other way. And so Hillary's problem is she's the safe choice. And that makes her unappealing to idealists. Right. Uh, if you're willing to vote for Jill Stein, uh, it's very long odds. Well, look, in the, in the long run, so I just looked at um, – Neither Hillary nor uh, Donald Trump have sealed a deal with their own partisans. So if you look at Democrats, it's 77% uh, of Democrats say they're going to vote for uh, Hillary, 72% for Trump. That was partly an effect of the debate. But where, where are they? Uh, where, why is it only 77% when Obama got 93% and Romney got 93, 94%? So I looked at that, and it was a category, you know, a strong Democrat and then weak or lean Democrat. Mm -hmm. And among the strong Democrats, she's right up there with uh, where Obama was. But among uh, weak and lean Democrats, she's down around 67, 68 percent. And then when you look at those people, uh, they tend to be on the Democratic side. They're younger than the strong Democrats. 
they're uh, more female, they're more single, and in each one of those groups, she has problems, and so she does even a little less well mm -hmm. than she does among not as strong Democrats. So, but in the end, uh, the point is, are they gonna vote for Donald Trump or Jill Stein? Uh, so it's really late for them not to have decided, but right. I just don't see them voting for, they may stay home, but I don't see them voting for her. Well, third party candidates traditionally lose about half their support in the last month. Uh, so Ralph Nader, for example, uh, went from 6% to 3% in the last 30 days of the Wallace election. Wallace dropped big drops, I um, think. And Ross Perot also took John a John Anderson. Hit. Um, so, you know, this is the point at which you would expect uh, people, uh, you know, really first started paying attention with the presidential debates. People like us, we've been paying attention for years, um, <laughs> but real normal people, <laughs> which we aren't, um, you know, only started paying attention. So, I, you know, I think this is the point at which the election is going to congeal. Maybe, maybe the problem is this, fellas. Hillary's right. They're all living at home in their basements. <laughs> they can't get any bars. They can't get any Wi-Fi. She can't reach them. Uh, I would recommend that Hillary stop speaking at her fundraisers. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think that uh, I agree with Doug. She should. She, yeah, she's not very good at those. Uh, uh, it's amazing. Politicians, there's always at least once or twice during a campaign where a politician walks in and forgets that there's somebody holding up a phone and recording it. And it's going to be But, but she knew in the case of the um, one where she, the deplorables, that was the first one they invited the press into. Yeah. Um, it, it, it's amazing to me that someone as experienced as Hillary, who's generally done a pretty good job of not creating uh, problems for herself, unlike Trump, who um, takes advantage of every opportunity to seize on something that will distract him. I, um, I go back to that uh, boxer Hershenson race here in California. I think as the risk-free candidate, I think that the minute Hillary gets four or five points up and people think, okay, she's gonna get elected. That frees a bunch of these people up to say, okay, I'm undecided or I might vote for Trump. Yeah. And then when he gets really close, it moves uh, the other way. So an interesting thing is asking people who they think will win as opposed yes, to who yeah, they're gonna vote yes. for. And so by about two to one, people think that Clinton is gonna win. Right. Um, so at this point, Trump at least for a bunch of people, Trump doesn't seem like that big of a threat compared to where he is in the polls. He's closer in the polls than Mitt Romney was um, at this point in 2012. Exactly. Now this gets in the concept of when does an election actually get baked in. For Donald Trump now, he's kind of walking into perilous times. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers uh, for a long time had an announcer named Dave Zinkoff. Uh, goes back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, one of the great PA guys of all time. And Sinkoff would do the best public service announcements during a game. And one of the best was that he would go on the mic and say, well, the owner of a blue Chevrolet, turn off his lights. And then you come back in the next quarter, the owner of a blue Chevrolet, your lights are still on. And then finally by the fourth quarter, he'd go, the owner of a blue Chevrolet, your lights are still on. And he'd pause, he'd go, but they're getting dimmer. <laughs> And I think that's one way to look at uh, Sunday's debate with Donald Trump. The lights are getting dimmer, and if he doesn't do something different in that debate, he's in trouble. A 
word of editorial ranting here on myself. I have a very personal dislike of presidential town hall debates. In part, it's because I was scarred by this. I worked on the Bush campaign in 1992, the last presidential debate to be in Virginia before Tuesday's vice presidential debate, by the way. And it was the first time in American history we had a town hall debate in a general election, Bill Clinton. And, and George W. Bush, and yes, and my, my two friends are looking at their watch right now, and this is the moment everybody remembers. It's just a long, painful night for George W. H. W. Bush, because why? He's face-to-face -face with real Americans, who aren't necessarily real Americans sometimes. There's always a teacher's union activist in there and some Republican delegate and so forth. There's always a lot of mischief that goes into these things. But he's confronted with awkward questions left and right, the most painful one of which is, how has the economy personally affected you? And he's just... George H.W. Bush is an old-school politician. He's just used to being at 30,000 feet above the country as a president, and he just can't process this. Whereas Bill Clinton could get off the stool and hug somebody and say, I feel your pain, and you know, I know it touches us all, and kind of jabber on, really not say anything. Bush is just flummoxed, and he is so fed up in the evening that 10 minutes before the debate, he looks down at his watch. And I remember watching this debate back in Washington with the campaign and thinking, where is my resume? <laughs> Game over. Um, so ever since, I've really disliked these town halls. But this presents a real challenge for Trump and that Trump has got to show some empathy and connect with people. And this is not – Trump is great in front of raucous crowds of five and 10,000 yeah. people. It's one of the reasons I'd contend why he struggled in that presidential debate because yeah. not a quiet crowd. There's no energy to feed off of. He's the equivalent of Hurricane Matthew in that regard. So he's got to find a way to gauge in it. She, to her credit, has been doing a lot of town halls, and she is probably locked and ready for this. Well, let me give one scenario. Suppose he wins. Well, I, I well, it depends on I what you mean by win. Well, I mean win. So suppose he came out as well as Romney did right. out of the first debate of uh, 2012. You mean, you mean we get the obligatory, we saw a different Donald Trump tonight? Yeah, I, my view would be, I still don't see, uh, I, my guess would be when we meet uh, the week after, when you look at the same poll of the same people, so we're looking at the same people pre and post, pre and right. post. I don't see any big swing to them. Well, who won is the wrong question. That's yeah. asking people to evaluate, uh, you know, how they uh, debating points. Um, what's what you can change in a debate is the narrative, right. um, and you know I think from the Trump team's standpoint, um, the problem they had with the narrative is that Donald Trump isn't presidential. Uh, and he didn't do anything to change that around. Uh, I don't think Hillary Clinton changed the narrative on her at all. I don't think she connected well with people. Uh, but on the other hand, she didn't do anything that shot herself in the foot. Whereas Trump, after that debate, and even, uh, I mean, I think he hurt himself even worse afterwards, that uh, his excuse making and so forth made him look like he was flailing. Uh, so all he needs to do is come in and be disciplined. And uh, What's the odds of that? Well, uh, I think amazingly low. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, he came out in the first debate. He clearly was prepared for the first question. But he wasn't prepared for some other obvious questions. Um, and if he can uh, essentially make people think that he – is not completely implausible as a president. It may swing some votes of people yeah. who are nervous about him, who would prefer him, uh, and who dislike Hillary. Right. Uh, the interesting thing is the, the number of people 
I don't like Trump, but can't uh, get over the hump of saying they're going to vote for Hillary Clinton. So let me ask you a question. So on these uh, town halls, uh, the, the candidates don't know what the question will be, right? Right. And uh, how are the how are the uh, how are the people selected uh, to the ask questions? Uh, the people will be selected. I imagine the presidential, uh, the Commission on Presidential Debates will work with um, the organizers of the debate. Do they see be, the questions first? Uh, no, they do not. No, see no the they make them, uh, and the, they're decided, chosen from undecided voters, right, correct? Chosen from undecided voters, right. Yeah, so they go through a recruitment process, right. and then the people get to ask the questions they want. But they don't, they don't screen the questions. It's not, it's not no. as though there was a No, card. they get up. Yeah, so well, it's, the one, it's the, random. Right. The yeah. one Bill mentioned in 1992, which really flummoxed George Bush, was uh, how does the debt affect me? Big. And Personally, Bush yeah. was thinking, well, the government deficit, and, you know, well, that has a sort of secondary effect right. on interest rates and – Whereas Bill Clinton just immediately ignored what she said and uh, yeah. said, you know, I know you're hurting. Yeah. It's, uh, um, it's some voters given the chance to talk to a president. One of the problems with these things, they'll ask a question, which is just about seven levels of government, yeah. way below the president. You yeah. know, <clears throat> what is my street light work? Yeah. You know, why are my What's the price of milk? Things like mm -hmm. that. It's yeah. just presidents. Do, so it's a little beneath that. But and, and it's tougher for the candidates to just completely ignore the questions the way they can for the uh, right. moderators. It is. But, you know, Dave, uh, Doug hit on a key point here, which is the narrative and that um, – you get at this point in the election, and this seems to happen to Republicans more than Democrats, so sometimes happen to Democrats as well, you get into what I call the debt spiral. And debt spiral is this. You are now trailing in the polls. So now polls are coming out with bad stories. You are losing. Reporters start looking at the Electoral College. They see the road doesn't add up to 270. Maybe you're making a few mistakes during the week. You've just had a bad stretch. So that adds to it. So then a bad week of news coverage and then maybe a mediocre report of a performance, another round of polls, and it just has a tumbling effect. And where it comes out, then, is a perception of who's going to win this. Right. And, you know, you, if the debate – if the news coverage is on who's winning right. and you're behind, you are, by definition, getting lousy news coverage. Right. Um, I would say on the debates, uh, watching these, it's like, wow, we could design these a lot better than the way they're designed. One thing I noticed in both the presidential and vice presidential debate is the moderator asks a question that goes on for 30 seconds, right. and then the candidates make their opening statements that, of course, have nothing to do with the moderator's questions. Mm -hmm. Why aren't we giving them a chance to make an opening statement before we insert the moderator into this? Now, Bill yeah. uh, actually wrote a column, I think, a week or two ago, suggesting some changes, two of which are quite likely in the third are possible. The third is not possible. Right. What so, were your uh, proposals, Bill? Well, I proposed it first of all. We uh, let's just do away with moderators. This is the yeah. this is the automated society. Your pizza is going to be delivered to you by drones. You yeah. your Amazon is going to come to you by drones. Let's just let's just kind of like let the candidates go out and just have a moderator maybe keeping time. But otherwise, there's no need to have this personal interaction, which I think Dave seems to think will never happen. Yeah. Second suggestion is um, we need to shake up the format. 
of, of the journalist and the moderators. And that from 1960 to 1988, you had a moderator, a Barbara Walters, someone like that, mm-hmm. who would run the show, but she would have three or four journalists behind her, and they would be the ones actually asking the questions. They tend to get segments, and they would go into different things. Fred Barnes, the Weekly Standard, a Hoover Media fellow this week, he and I sat mm-hmm. down here the other day, and we talked about this. Fred pressed, uh, in 1984, Fred did the first of the two debates between Mondale and Reagan. And Fred used his time to press Ronald Reagan and Walter Mondale on religion. And it's kind of interesting when you look at what he did. He said, Mr. Reagan, you know, you talk very much about faith, but you never go to church. You know, what's up with that? And then he went to Mondale and said, well, you talk very much about your faith, but you also condemn Jerry Falwell at every opportunity. So, you know, what's your definition of a Christian? And so you had just a better style of asking questions. And with the journalist behind the moderator, it took all the pressure off the moderator. Because well, it's the next one. And then the, the third one, the third is, one I think that's not going to happen. The third one will never happen. Yeah. The third one was we have, we have a system in place right now, Doug, in which pretty much guarantees a third-party candidate will not participate. What, if, what are the two criteria? He or she has to be on the ballot in enough states to get to 270 electoral votes. He or she has to average 15% in the polls. So my suggestion, I can see the sneer on your face already, (laughs) my suggestion was let's lower the bar to 10% because Johnson was sitting at about 8.5% when the cutoff was done for the first debate. If he is close to 10, that gets him more coverage, that makes it more interesting. (laughs) Grading on a curve there, Bill. (laughs) I I don't have any problem with 10% as a cutoff. 15 is a pretty high one for a third-party candidate. Why would the Democrats and Republicans want to agree to that? That's the problem. They never agreed to it. No, but uh, it's... It's like Ross Perot, uh, right. essentially. Yeah, he, was high. He, he managed he was to not, force he was Bush. He was high at the time of the debate. He was down in, he was about 8% at the time of that debate, but he had led during the summer, yeah. so you were yeah. yeah, so he was a, he was a um, I, I do think uh, extra candidates are potentially a distraction. Right. Um, the, you know, the problem with talk the, about Aleppo. Um, the uh, problem with, uh, journalists is uh, if you have a panel of four people, then each person pursues their own questions. Right. The advantage of a moderator, and I think Lester Holt did a reasonably good job of this, is to do follow-ups. Um, I thought in the vice presidential debate they were begging for follow-ups at various points, um, and in fact the moderator insisted on uh, we have to move on now to a completely different subject. Yeah, this is a problem when you take a 90-minute debate and you cut up into nine, ten-minute segments. Yeah. It becomes basically speed dating. Yeah, I think this one got cut into four-minute segments. Debates, I've always <laughs> thought debates were in some way silly because presidents don't debate, they decide. On the other hand, uh, the U.S. debate system is being picked up. All the British have it now. Right. French. I mean, it. It. The, the U.S. debate is being picked up around yeah. the world. That uh, you have to, if you're going to be run for the top office, you have to. You have to be in a debate like the Americans have. The big problem is the low qual, low debating skills of our candidates compared <laughs> to the British candidates. No, I think overall debates are a great thing. I mean, it's it's essentially a way of creating a huge huge audience uh, that doesn't require. Uh, campaign contributions to finance it. Uh, I'm not a fan of most um, campaign finance reforms, mm-hmm. uh, but I do think one of essentially uh, uh, giving free media time in a form that the candidates uh, don't completely control is is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, good point. Uh, better than uh, another uh, billion dollars of advertising. That's a very good point. I want to cover one final thing here, fellas. Uh, the Los Angeles Times did something 
rather unusual yesterday. David Lauder, who's the bureau chief in Washington for the LA Times, wrote a story about polling, which is not necessarily his forte. And what was he writing about? He was basically defending his newspaper. The Los Angeles Times puts out every day what it calls the USC Dornsife LA, LA Times Daybreak Poll. And it's an overnight sample. And what is unique about that poll is what? It's the only poll in America that shows has Donald Trump ahead and has had him <laughs> consistently ahead by four or five points. Correct. So let me defend this poll. So this um, is an outgrowth of uh, work done by the RAND Corporation in uh, 2012, which was the most accurate presidential election poll in 2012 that had Barack Obama winning by four points whereas most of the polls had uh, Obama winning by an average of about two points, including our own. Right. Um, uh, the people who run this uh, are uh, credible people. Uh, this is not a uh, one dial-in poll or anything like that. It's a panel of people uh, who uh, take surveys on a regular basis, and they go back uh, to a subset of them uh, every day and ask them how they're going to vote. They have consistently shown Trump ahead, uh, so it's highly at variance with other polls. There are some things they do differently than other polls, uh, which I think are probably the crux of their problem. Mm -hmm. um, one is their likely voter screen is they ask people, uh, on a scale of 0 to 100, how likely are you to vote? Uh, and they weight their sample uh, by that uh, to get likely voters. Uh, the problem is, uh, we've experimented with that, and it's not terribly reliable, and it has a gender bias. That is, men are more likely to put their number at 100 than women are. Uh, and so I think one of the problems is that if you look at their composition of their likely voters, uh, they're a little too male. And mm -hmm. given the size of the gender gap this year, that's a problem for them. Thank you. So that's a great. I, yeah, so I, I think that was a great explanation. So they're really they're good pollsters. Right. But it's amazing how a little mistake like that, in terms of who's in the poll, can uh, make a difference. In fact, on, say on the recontact survey that we use a lot, these people have been polled so often over time. It might be that they're a little bit on the political uh, aficionado side. And the result may be we may be getting a little bias on that because... Well, a challenge they, of panel yeah, research yeah. is that the people who respond over and over again are right. ones that are most interested in politics. Right. Yeah. And you have to be careful to control that. Yeah. Right. Uh, and there is, you know, there's a bit of an enthusiasm gap. Uh, right. In 2012, it ran the other way. The Democrats were more enthusiastic than Republicans. Yeah. Now, when Louder wrote this, he cited a uh, daybreak poll that had the race at 47-43 Trump. And he also wrote that in that poll that Clinton led among, um, Trump led among men by 17 points, and Clinton had a nine-point edge among women, which sounds low. Um, that is a 26-point gender cap, if you yes. take the 17 and the nine. He then mentioned at NBC, he mentioned three polls, all Internet polls. He mentioned, secondly, NBC SurveyMonkey, which had Clinton up 50 to 44, gave her a six-point lead had her leading by 18 points among women, which is double the size of Trump's nine-point lead among men, a 27-point gender gap. Then he added poll number three, YouGov. And I assume this is the YouGov Economist survey? Yes. Okay. So YouGov Economist, which had Clinton leading 43 to 40, 
had her ahead by 11 points among women, Trump ahead by five among men. That is a 16-point gender gap. So a couple of things about that, Dave and Doug. We have been, the narrative of this election has been that in 2012, there was a 20-point gender gap between Romney and and uh, Obama, that uh, Romney carried uh, men by eight, but Obama carried women by a record 12, 20 points, largest gender gap ever. I think 1984 is the previous record holder. The assumption is the first woman candidate is going to spike the Democratic advantage among women, and Trump being Trump and appealing in particular to less educated men is going to spike the male vote his way, a bigger gender gap. So this YouGov survey tells me, Dave and Doug, that number one, the gender gap ain't necessarily what we thought it would be. But secondly, Trump ahead by only five points among men, doing worse among men than Mitt Romney did? Yeah, so uh, our gender gap's been bouncing around, right. and that's on the lower side of what we've seen. But though we have not been getting as large as the ones you mentioned in the USC and the uh, uh, Survey Monkey poll. Right. Um, what surprised me, because earlier in the summer, Trump was doing really badly among women, and he has gone out of his way in various points to offend women, uh, was that you've seen that lower education women, working class women, have been coming back to the Republican Party. So there's a smaller gender gap among working class women. Right. It's a huge one among uh, uh the best indicator is education. So uh, college graduates, uh, we're seeing a huge gender gap between men and women there. Right. So yeah, what happens is that if you have high school or less, I don't know if they're working class, but if you have high school or lower ed education. It's a reasonable level, definition. Reasonable definition. But if you have high school or less, uh, you're probably not an executive, I'll agree to that. Uh, <laughs> high school or less, uh, those people, those women, are much stronger for uh, Trump than, than you would have expected. But among college-educated single women, it's uh, very, very high for Clinton. But among college-educated men, uh, Trump is not doing as well among them as Romney did. So right. that's <coughs> why we're getting less of a gap than right. the others. Cuts both ways. Yeah. <coughs> um, we typically use education as our measure of socioeconomic yeah. status. Um, it's, it's a much cleaner variable than something yeah, like I income, because yeah. you have people in their 20s that are relatively low income, uh, but don't behave yeah. like uh, uh, low income people. Um, Stanford students, for example. Yeah, and you know, the nature of Trump's appeal, um, and the place where he's uh, enlarge the Republican base is essentially, yeah. uh, I'm the guy who's for you uh, if you're in this uh, working class category. Right. Um, and it's hard to see this in a lot of polls because they don't break out minorities from whites yeah. uh, in, in the education group. So the target, it, and the one that he's just really doing much better than Romney is working class whites. So I can give you the cosmetics of what these two candidates need to do on Sunday. For him, it can't be any simpler. He has to be just better at explaining negatives, be it his taxes, be it his comments about women. He has to be able to say what he said and then deflect and move on quickly instead of spending several minutes as he did in the first debate, just awkwardly stammering along. Yeah. Secondly, he has to show empathy and a connection with people. He has to step off that stage and probably physically get in space with people and show their concerns and be able to relate to them one-on-one, -on -one, something he's not done so far. 
And thirdly, the one which, which Dave is right, he's going to have a probably impossible time of doing this, staying even keeled for 90 minutes and not taking the bait, the combination of the bait from Hillary, but also the fact that he has not but one but two moderators coming at this time, Martha Raddatz and Anderson Cooper. Uh, I don't know how much of a history he has going back in New York with Anderson Cooper and Anderson's not mother, good. but <laughs> who knows what. But yeah. So he has to last 90 minutes. Now, what are her cosmetics? Well, number one, obviously, empathy, likability, just maybe, okay, I can maybe handle Hillary for eight years. And then the second one, and we'll see if she can pull this off, is not being too cocky. If you watched her the past week, <clears throat> she's kind of feeling yeah. good about things right now, yeah. and she's being a little condescending about yeah. him on the thing, and you don't... You don't want to, do in that. some way, turn him yeah. into a sympathetic character or just come, right. come across as a right. jerk. So right. those are the goals. But those are the cosmetics, guys. Give me, give me one or two groups they've got to reach. Tell me where they're underperforming and who they've got to warm up to in this debate. Yeah, so Hillary has a choice between going after the base, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, the way she would connect with the base, younger women, millennials, and so forth, is... Uh, to make it about a uh, first woman president, about choice, about the Supreme Court, about the future, right. be positive. Uh, the alternative is to go after uh, the swing voter group. These are people who are naturally not, uh, they don't like her, um, but they're worried about uh, Donald Trump. This was her strategy in the first debate, clearly, Jess, and this is what Tim right. Kaine was doing also on Tuesday night, just Trump, Trump, Trump. Yeah, and, and one place where she performed really well in the first debate was the email question. She gave an answer that couldn't have been more than about 15 seconds. Um, yeah. Shouldn't have done it. Sorry. Mistake. I made a Ended mistake. It. Sorry. Shouldn't and, have done it. Uh, that got the debate off of that subject. Mm -hmm. Trump's problem is when someone needles them about something, He's going to talk about it, even if it's a bad issue for him. So, for example, his taxes are not a good issue for him. Right. So he needs to have clean, short answer and move on. Okay. Dave, what, is well, Trump, I think what does Trump have to connect? Well, I think Trump has to do exactly what you said. He has to show empathy. I, have, I really have nothing to add. I thought Doug's statement was good, and I thought yours was good, and what Trump had to do. So I could blather on, but I'm not. Rarely, I'm going to take a rare, rare exception and stop. <laughs> Okay. Gentlemen, good talking today. Keep me posted on Costa Rica, by the way. I'll be, I'll be glad to come visit. You've been listening to Pole Position, a Hoover Institution podcast about the 2016 election. For more information about the Hoover Institution, please visit our website. That's www.hoover.org. And while you're there, I encourage you to sign up for the Hoover Daily Report. It keeps you up to date on what's going on at the Hoover Institution, our studies, analyses, and commentaries. It'll arrive in your inbox every business day, rain, shine, or hurricane. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. On behalf of my colleagues, thanks for joining us today. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more research by our fellows on the 2016 election, please visit hoover.org slash decision 2016. For more podcasts from Hoover, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.